Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, sexual assault, and substance use that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The ancient Greek physician Hippocrates is often credited with the saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. It was originally an argument for healing from extreme conditions. A great deal of sickness requires an unusually large cure. The treating of deep scars, for instance, required a lather of crocodile dung. But sometimes, desperate measures only create bigger problems, like a horrific, inescapable stench. Dr. Edward William Pritchard's story shows a tragic example of prescriptions gone foul. His balm for rising financial issues? Getting a loan from his wife's family to buy a new home. His response to getting his housemaid pregnant? Inducing a miscarriage. His plot for dealing with unhappiness in his marriage? Killing his wife. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Edward William Pritchard, our poisonous practitioner of Glasgow. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. Edward William Pritchard, a fraudulent physician whose desperation for status led him to murder his mother-in-law and wife in 1865. Last episode, we explored how Pritchard exploited family connections for jobs, failed in his first medical practices, and allegedly murdered his housemaid. This time, we'll discover who Pritchard's wandering eye and penchant for poisoning terrorize next. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Early 1864 was a time of transition for 38-year-old Dr. Edward William Pritchard, his wife Mary Jane, and their five children. Their young servant, Lizzie McGurn, had died a year earlier in a tragic fire that many suspected Dr. Pritchard of starting. Hoping for a fresh start, Dr. Pritchard moved his family to number 22 Royal Crescent in Glasgow, Scotland. Unfortunately for Dr. Pritchard, the change of scenery didn't improve his professional prospects. Pritchard's hefty boasts of travels abroad and surgical expertise only left fellow doctors skeptical. Perhaps if he'd humbled himself, locals would have been able to see him as a physician who simply hadn't fared so well in the past. But Pritchard saw his struggle to establish his professional status as an overwhelming stain on his record. He preferred broadcasting feigned success, even if it ostracized him from the medical community at large. Case in point, he's said to have printed cards showing his picture with the address of his practice and spread them around town. As a contemporary doctor, printing flyers of yourself would be pretty odd and seem a bit self-absorbed. However, back then, it may have been a more common way of spreading news about your practice. Today, individual doctors don't generally advertise themselves so explicitly, but medical groups sometimes do, using things like periodicals, internet ads, and television commercials. Solo practitioners usually expand their practices through word of mouth and referrals from patients and other doctors. However, many do promote themselves by having practice websites, making expert appearances in the media, and through publications. The level of self-advertisement also depends on the specialty. Plastic surgeons, for example, may advertise more because they often perform elective procedures, while heart surgeons probably wouldn't because of the life-sustaining nature of their work. There's definitely circumstances where a doctor's self-promotion can get excessive, and this can lead one to question a care provider's true motives. Pritchard's self-indulgent ads may have actually turned people away from soliciting his care, but who can say? We can't confirm exactly how the ads were received, but we can assume that Pritchard's Glasgow practice wasn't notably successful by mid-1864. At least, not enough to secure the opulent life he wanted. Apparently, the new house on Royal Crescent Street wasn't grand enough. He 
needed more. But buying a new home required money they didn't have. So he secured financial assistance from his wife's family to buy a house at 131 Sockyhall Street. However, Mary Jane's mother, Mrs. Jane Taylor, didn't offer the generous handout free of warning. In private correspondence with Dr. Pritchard, she expressed a sense of desperation that he would find success soon. It seems Mrs. Taylor was increasingly skeptical that Dr. Pritchard was worthy of her daughter. Even with the new house and the harsh warning, however, Dr. Pritchard didn't perceive that as reason enough to actually do right by his wife. He continued his sexual relationship with his teenage maid, Mary McLeod. According to reports, in the summer of 1864, Mary Jane Pritchard caught them kissing in a bedroom. Dr. Pritchard was upset. Not that he had disappointed Mary Jane with his infidelity, but that he'd been caught. Still, Mary Jane stayed with her husband, likely assuring herself that all marriages ran into difficulty eventually. Though we now see Pritchard's relationship with Mary McLeod as sexual assault due to her age and his role as her employer, at the time, it was only viewed as an affair. So Mary Jane Pritchard had little power to do anything about it. She stood by her husband in defeated silence, and Dr. Pritchard continued to assault his 15-year-old maid. By the late summer of 1864, 38-year-old Pritchard had impregnated Mary McLeod. The news worried him. As it was later suspected, he'd already killed his last maid, Lizzie McGurn. If Mary McLeod also died suddenly, it would look too suspicious for police to write off as coincidence. So rather than kill Mary McLeod, he appears to have induced a miscarriage. He assured her that in the future, they'd be able to have kids of their own. That was, if Mrs. Pritchard ever died. Believing him, Mary was subjected to a painful miscarriage. At the time, she might have been his only patient. Dr. Pritchard simply couldn't build up a client base. To compensate, he supplemented his income by overdrawing from two separate bank accounts. He had one at Clydesdale Bank and another at City of Glasgow Bank. Since he lived at such a fine property, both banks trusted he would eventually pay back his loans with interest. Perhaps they didn't know that the house was purchased with a family loan. Pritchard's money problems grew with every passing month as he continued to promote himself as someone of far higher financial standing than he was. Maybe in another attempt to boost his reputation, or just a more desperate money grab, Dr. Pritchard took in two medical students named Connell and King in the fall of 1864. He somehow convinced them that he was an ideal candidate to learn from though it's unclear whether Pritchard actually taught them anything. Still, Pritchard's debts kept growing and, as he seemed to think, desperate times called for desperate measures. 
Nothing he did as an aspiring doctor paid as quickly as the loans from his wife's family. That's when it hit him. Mary Jane's mother had an order in her will leaving £2,500 to her daughter. But if his wife wasn't alive to collect that money, Dr. Pritchard likely thought he was entitled to it. He reasoned that at 70 years old, his mother-in-law was close enough to death that the inheritance would come soon. Today, the sum would be worth more than £320,000. All his, if he could get Mary Jane out of the way. So it was all too convenient for Pritchard when, rather suddenly, in October 1864, Mary Jane fell ill. Plagued by fits of vomiting and frequent chills, she remained in bed as the colder autumn weather took hold in Glasgow. Doctors examined her, but couldn't seem to pin down her condition. It was simply so random. Still, Mary Jane held strong to the notion that she would recover soon. Dr. Pritchard expressed sorrow for his wife. Her weakened state kept her from spending time with her children and tending to other household duties. As Mrs. Pritchard lay in bed, Dr. Pritchard insisted on bringing much of his wife's food to her. This was important, because while we don't know for certain, it's suspected that around this time, Pritchard was poisoning Mary Jane's meals. Mary Jane's symptoms give us some clues into the state of her health. Her prolonged fatigue, vomiting, and chills could have pointed to a number of things. They could have indicated something viral, like gastrointestinal enteritis, for instance, also known as the stomach flu. They may have also hinted at more serious infectious conditions, like early-onset peritonitis, which is where the lining of the abdomen becomes irritated and inflamed. She could have even appeared to have intestinal worms or a toxemic infection from gallbladder disease, pancreatic inflammation, or a budding appendicitis. There's also the possibility that her illness was a result of repeated poisonings through contaminated food. Ingesting poisons orally could lead to the symptoms she developed, and given the sudden onset and prolonged nature of her sickness, it's likely the best culprit. This, sadly, could very well have been her husband's doing. Now, had Pritchard been trying to poison his wife slowly so as to suggest she had a recurring health condition, it would have made sense for him to pause on occasion. That way, Mary Jane would show phases of improvement that many with life-threatening illnesses experience during a long period of decline. And sure enough, by late November, Mary Jane began feeling well enough to pay a visit to her family in Edinburgh. Little did she know, her trip gave her husband the perfect opportunity to stock up on lethal substances. Coming up, Pritchard escalates his poisoning plot. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast. 
Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In November 1864, Dr. Edward William Pritchard's efforts to poison his wife, Mary Jane, were temporarily halted. Mary Jane left their home in Glasgow intending to visit family, but it was ultimately the best decision she could have made for her health. After a few weeks in Edinburgh, Mary Jane felt better than she had in months. She speculated that perhaps the sprawling countryside did her better than Glasgow's cramped metropolis. Meanwhile, her husband, Dr. Pritchard, was up to more nefarious deeds. Sometime during that month, he made a stop at Murdoch Brothers, an apothecary. There, he purchased one ounce of tartarized antimony and a tincture of aconite. Tartarized antimony and aconite are both toxic substances that were formerly used as medications. Tartarized antimony was known as an emetic in the 1800s, which means it was used to induce vomiting. It was actually a common treatment for a lot of diseases and used to purge the bowels of people with stomach issues. It was also administered to evacuate toxins by stimulating perspiration and was even thought by some to rid the body of negative emotions. Aconite was another frequently used medication due to its pain-killing and fever-reducing effects. Both of these drugs have extreme risk profiles, and upon high-dose ingestion, aconite can actually cause lethal cardiovascular and neurological complications. These include things like arrhythmia, cardiac arrest, and respiratory paralysis. Poisons like these had been used as medicine for millennia, so it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for someone with a medical background like Pritchard to have had them in his possession. Dr. Pritchard had no intention of healing with the chemicals. He was preparing for his wife's return and her funeral. It frustrated him that she was spending so long in Edinburgh and it angered him even more when, 
On December 6, 1864, 39-year-old Dr. Pritchard received a letter from his daughter. She was staying with her mother in Edinburgh, and she shared that Mrs. Pritchard had gained weight and was eating normally again. Dr. Pritchard's dark plot was further out of reach than ever. It would take even more effort to weaken his wife again and secure her inheritance. He fumed. Over the next couple of days, he pondered how he might expedite her death. And on December 8th, he purchased yet another tincture of aconite, one six times stronger than normal. His impatience was evident. Unfortunately for Pritchard, his wife did not return home to Glasgow until December 22nd, just before Christmas. Oddly, Dr. Pritchard held off on his murder plot until after the holiday. After all, if everything went to plan, it would be his children's last Christmas with their mother. Just one week into the new year, Mrs. Pritchard's mystery symptoms reappeared. Nausea and vomiting quickly made her malnourished and weak. Still, Dr. Pritchard insisted she nourish herself. Every day he brought her food that was very likely tainted and watched her consume it, fully aware that in a matter of hours it would have her retching. On February 1st, 1865, Mary Jane had a serious attack of cramps and pain in her stomach. She clutched her bedsheets, desperate for solace. When Catherine Latimer, the cook, found her laying weak and contorted in bed, she sought Dr. Pritchard's help. At Catherine's prodding, he contacted Mary Jane's second cousin, Dr. James Cohen, a retired doctor in Edinburgh. But he wasn't pleased with Catherine's intervention. By mid-February, she was no longer working for the family. Dr. Pritchard had no patience for any interference. Creditors had come knocking to claim his debts, which now totaled several hundred pounds. If he didn't get rid of his wife, he might lose the house. Still, Pritchard welcomed his wife's cousin, Dr. Cohen. Dr. Cohen arrived on February 7th and stayed overnight to monitor Mary Jane. The visiting doctor deduced that she had some stomach irritation and prescribed a mustard poultice, along with small quantities of champagne and ice. Mustard and champagne may sound like a weird prescription, but they can have some potential health benefits for certain patients. Mustard poultice is a paste made from mustard seed powder, and this was prescribed because after its ingestion, it stimulated the production of gastric juices, which stimulated one's appetite. This paste was also thought to be a laxative and an effective product to metabolize fat. It was additionally used topically to warm the body, which helped relieve aches and pains. Doctors frequently recommended alcohol back in those days, Alistair, because it quickly increased blood circulation, which stimulated the heart, lungs, and digestive system. In Mary Jane's case, the alcohol would have induced gastric acid production and peristalsis in her gut, which is probably why Dr. Cohen recommended it. The champagne would have also given her some sugar and would have likely triggered her hunger. 
Today, these aren't great tools for managing severe nausea. These treatments ultimately exacerbate these symptoms because of their propensity to produce stomach acid. Now, there are effective and targeted drugs for this, but back then, these would have been reasonable options. Unfortunately for Mary Jane, the real problem wasn't in her stomach, but in the man she'd married. When Dr. Cohen returned to Edinburgh, Dr. Pritchard returned to his murder plot. Soon after, he made another purchase of antimony and dosed his wife's food again. That night, she experienced another fit of violent nausea. She clutched her stomach, writhing in agony as her skin paled. When a local physician came to check on her, he was surprised. Like Dr. Cohen, he couldn't seem to determine what was wrong with Mary Jane. If anything, she seemed inebriated. At that point, Dr. Pritchard claimed he'd given his wife stimulants to treat what he suspected was catalepsy. Catalepsy can present as a symptom in people with neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease and epilepsy. It's usually a condition that's linked to abnormal brain physiology, but it can result from drug withdrawal, especially with cocaine. Catalepsy is similar to catatonia and causes extreme muscle rigidity and unresponsiveness to external stimulation and accelerated bodily functions, like slowed breathing, for example. It would have been really unlikely that Mary Jane was suffering from this, especially given that she didn't have Parkinson's or epilepsy. Furthermore, nausea and stomach discomfort aren't symptoms, and her writhing in pain negated the classic catalepsy sign of extreme muscle rigidity and slowed autonomic action. Pritchard's diagnosis likely seemed just as off to Dr. Cohen as it does to me. The physician did think it was preposterous, and he ordered Mary Jane to stop taking the stimulants. Then, he prescribed a simple dietary regimen. Dr. Pritchard assured the physician he'd heed the advice and sent him away. But the physician wasn't so convinced. He immediately sent a letter to Mary Jane's family recommending she be brought to Edinburgh to be in their care. When Mary Jane's relatives wrote and requested she come, however, Dr. Pritchard argued his wife was far too weak to travel. It may have been true, but his motives were undoubtedly evil. He couldn't let her slip from his clutches. In compromise, Mary Jane's 70-year-old mother, Mrs. Jane Taylor, boarded a train to Glasgow on February 10, 1865. If her daughter couldn't come to her, she'd come to her daughter. Simple. But Mrs. Taylor couldn't have conceived the horror that awaited her. When Dr. Pritchard brought Mrs. Taylor up to Mary Jane's bedroom, she was shocked to see her daughter so thin. Dr. Pritchard claims that, regardless of what he tried, Mary Jane couldn't hold down any food. Though concerned, Mrs. Taylor reasoned that she'd eventually be able to nurse her daughter back to health. Just two days later, Mary Jane fell sick with another fit of vomiting and cramps. The next day, she requested tabioca pudding, which Dr. Pritchard gladly prepared for her 
only this time, he didn't bring her the food. He left the house on business while Mary McLeod brought the food to her mistress. However, Mrs. Taylor intercepted the young maid. She took the food and ate it herself. Within hours, she became ill and vomited just like her daughter. (coughs) When Dr. Pritchard returned home, he was displeased to find that the poisoned pudding hadn't gone to his intended target. It struck him that Mrs. Taylor may very well have deduced that the food was what had sickened her. This complicated his plan. Worried his mother-in-law might reveal his vile acts to his wife and further intercept his plot, Dr. Pritchard quickly hatched a new scheme. After all, desperate times called for desperate measures. Conveniently for Pritchard, Mrs. Taylor took regular doses of Batley's sedative solution, an opiate concoction that soothed her headaches. Pritchard saw this as something he could exploit. If Mrs. Taylor overdosed on her prized sedative solution, it would be a tragic but believable accident. Around this time, Mrs. Taylor sent Mary McLeod to refill her prescription. When she returned, Pritchard took it. It seemed he wanted to deliver it to Mrs. Taylor himself. The following sequence of events is largely speculative, based on strong circumstantial evidence and eyewitness testimony. On Friday, February 24, 1865, Pritchard likely laced Mrs. Taylor's opioid medicine with heaping doses of antimony and aconite. By nightfall, The maids found Mrs. Taylor violently ill, retching in a chair, trying to throw up. She soon fell unconscious, with her head hung down over her chest. On finding her, Dr. Pritchard tried to wake her. When he couldn't, he summoned Dr. Patterson, a local physician, arguing that Mrs. Taylor had suffered apoplexy or a stroke and could still be revived. Dr. Patterson did not share this opinion. Instead, he was under the impression that Mrs. Taylor was dying under the influence of some powerful narcotic. And sure enough, at 1 a.m., Mrs. Taylor was pronounced dead. Coming up, Dr. Pritchard secures his wife's inheritance. Now, back to the story. In the wake of Mrs. Jane Taylor's murder in February 1865, a somber mood took hold of the Pritchard residence in Glasgow, Scotland. Still sick herself, Mary Jane Pritchard felt more hopeless than ever after losing her mother. On the other hand, her husband, Dr. Edward William Pritchard, didn't seem to be grieving at all. He was too busy trying to wash the guilt off his red hands. To do that, he needed a believable explanation for Mrs. Taylor's death. He knew the doctor he'd called upon to draw up a death certificate, Dr. Patterson, didn't buy the claim that she'd suffered apoplexy. He needed some other cause. So Pritchard shifted his story 
leaning into his mother-in-law's opioid use. It's possible Dr. Pritchard thought this explanation would make the most sense, as he'd already informed Dr. Patterson that poor Mrs. Taylor was in the habit of taking a drop and reasoned that excessive opioid intake caused her to fall unconscious. Conveniently, just one day later, one of the housemaids found an empty vial of Batley's sedative solution in Mrs. Taylor's pocket. Dr. Pritchard eagerly shared the finding with Dr. Patterson, demanding a death certificate. But Dr. Patterson remained unconvinced. It was too likely Pritchard had planted the bottle himself. Patterson declined to provide the death certificate, arguing that her tragic end had been sudden, unexpected, and to him, mysterious. So Dr. Pritchard wrote a death certificate up himself, declaring the primary cause of death as paralysis of 12 hours. The second was apoplexy. This was an instance where Dr. Pritchard truly revealed his lack of expertise. When examining a death, medical professionals refer to whatever directly triggers heart and respiratory failure as the primary cause. The secondary cause of death refers to health problems or complications leading to the acute primary cause. There's then additionally a third layer, which relates to any other influencing factors. To give an example, someone's primary cause of death could be a myocardial infarction or heart attack, and the secondary cause may be marked as coronary artery disease. The third contributing issue could then be something like diabetes, which is a vascular condition that affects the heart, lungs, and kidneys. When Mrs. Taylor died, Pritchard's simple listing of paralysis as primary to apoplexy was a major error disregarding the fact that the paralysis on its own was vague and unspecified wouldn't have been a primary cause of death over something like apoplexy, which in this case would have meant dropping dead from something like a stroke, brain hemorrhage, or another ruptured internal organ. It's definitely wild for a doctor to make this kind of blatant mistake on a death certificate. Despite this error, Dr. Pritchard evaded the harsh light of authorities Still, hoping to remain out of public scrutiny, Dr. Pritchard decided he had to act fast. While he'd consistently been poisoning Mary Jane throughout the month of February, killing her mother had slowed him down. Now, Mary Jane was the only thing standing in between him and the inheritance money. Within the first week of March 1865, Mary Jane's illness grew unbearable. She complained of vomiting in her sleep and began refusing meals. Perhaps her body could sense the food was contaminated. Poisons can create visceral repulsion in humans, and this is a result of the evolution of our sensory systems, which allow us to detect harmful substances through sight, touch, taste, and smell. This is biologically the reason that rotten food looks and smells unpleasant, and it's also why most toxins taste bitter, sour, or trigger unpleasant sensations in the mouth or nasal cavities. Mary Jane's refusal to eat was more likely the result of the trauma to her gut. With the amount of retching and vomiting she was experiencing, her body's hunger response would have been completely gone or even reversed. 
Flipping this switch is how the body compensates for a recovering digestive system. She also must have known at this point that she couldn't hold down food, and the prospect of more vomiting likely reduced her desire to eat. Unfortunately, Dr. Pritchard insisted his wife eat. And in each meal, he'd add heaping doses of antimony and aconite. During the third week of March, Pritchard prepared a serving of melted cheese for his wife, then gave it to his servant and mistress Mary McLeod to bring up to her. It seems Mary Jane may have suspected something was wrong, because that day, she asked Mary McLeod to taste her food. Though confused, Mary did as instructed. After a single nibble, she felt a burning sensation in her throat. She brought the cheese down to the kitchen where the cook had a taste of it the following morning and felt a similar burning sensation. On the afternoon of Friday, March 17th, Dr. Pritchard brought his wife a particularly potent concoction. By 5 p.m., Mary Jane suffered severe stomach cramps, became lightheaded, and began talking nonsense. She insisted that her maids tend to her mother, who was no longer alive. Dr. Pritchard hoped she wouldn't fall unconscious. He wanted his wife awake when Dr. Patterson arrived. After all, a witness was the only way he'd be able to secure a legitimate certificate of death. Dr. Patterson showed up shortly after 8 p.m. and was, once again, skeptical of Dr. Pritchard, who didn't seem to grasp the severity of the crisis at hand. He prescribed a sleeping draft for Mary Jane's discomfort, but her prospects looked grim. By the morning of Saturday, March 18th, Mary Jane Pritchard was dead. In front of the housemaids, Pritchard made a show of his grief, crying out Mary Jane's name and beckoning her spirit to return to him. However, his true colors were revealed when he sent a letter to Clydesdale Bank, assuring them that he could tend to his financial matters following his dear wife's funeral. That single action reveals the nature of Dr. Pritchard's greed, both ignorant and all-consuming. His behavior in the days that followed only further illuminated his heinous character. On the one hand, he was busy making boastful displays of his sadness and even kissed his dead wife on the mouth during her wake. But he also rushed to list gastric fever as the cause of her death, eager to put her to rest before anyone caught on to what he'd done. But someone already had caught on to what he'd done. Dr. Patterson had witnessed Dr. Pritchard's strange demeanor during both Mrs. Taylor's and Mary Jane Pritchard's deaths. It was widely believed at the time that he contacted the police and expressed his doubts about the nature of the fatalities. On Thursday, March 23, 1865, as Dr. Pritchard stepped from a train at Queen Street Station, he was arrested. 
Authorities searched his house and confiscated the items nearest Mary Jane at the time of her passing. They also conducted a post-mortem exam on Mary Jane's body and found copious amounts of antimony. This poison popped up in the logs of two separate apothecary shops. Both had sold the drugs to Dr. Edward William Pritchard repeatedly. Constables were stunned. It was a clear link between Dr. Pritchard and the murder. They'd caught him in possession of the weapon. Still, to further build the case, statements were taken from the resident cook and Mary McLeod. Both admitted that they'd once tasted food Dr. Pritchard prepared for his wife and burned their throats in the process. As the public caught wind of the exciting investigation, many began to question whether Pritchard had a hand in his mother-in-law's death as well. Her body was exhumed, and while examiners were unable to prove a cause of death, they did find detectable amounts of antimony. Nevertheless, Pritchard had no doubt poisoned his reputation, the thing that mattered most to him. This must have eaten at him as he awaited his day in court at North Prison in Glasgow. And it only grew worse when he entered the courtroom. On Monday, July 3rd, 1865, the trial began. Dr. Pritchard's opening claim? Not guilty. The hard proof told a far different story. It was quite literally in the pudding, in the tea, and in pieces of cheese that had burned the throats of the cook and Mary McLeod. Their eyewitness accounts depicted Pritchard's lack of moral character, and Mary even revealed her affair with the philandering doctor. Most convincing of all, Dr. Patterson spoke to his sheer awe at Pritchard's lack of professionalism in the presence of both dying women. It seemed that only a doctor with little true concern for his patients would exhibit such nonchalance as both of them suffered. His course of treatment was ineffectual, and he'd been in possession of the very poison found in Mary Jane's body following a chemical examination. Pritchard's hand in Mrs. Taylor's death was harder to prove, as the opioid concoction she'd taken regularly on her own had supposedly been part of what led to her deteriorating health. But none of her behaviors prior to dying indicated that she was suicidal. And the jury didn't have any trouble believing Pritchard was responsible for both murders, especially when they accounted for his potential motive. The £2,500 inheritance seemed too swift a solution to the doctor's outstanding debts. After five days, the jury found Dr. Pritchard guilty. He was sentenced to hang. Edward William Pritchard was as phony as they come. He demonstrated time and again that without familial connections and buttressing wealth, he would have been completely incapable of making any independent money as a doctor. He had a horrible awareness of business and finance, as we saw from his ridiculous debt. 
He also clearly had no innate sense of compassion or accountability, which was made evident by his adultery, his constant lies, and his wicked behavior. It takes a twisted mind to believe that a medical license can be bought instead of earned, but it takes a truly evil person to exploit that license and to poison their own family members. His attitude towards healthcare really bothers me deeply on a personal level, and it's almost impossible to fathom. On another note, this story shows how important it is for doctors to speak out when they see other practitioners being evil, being idiots, or both. If it hadn't been for Dr. Patterson, Pritchard may have slipped under the jerk radar. Ultimately, he's a tragic example of how a desperate search for notoriety can have poisonous results. And that thirst for status wasn't quenched yet. Shortly after he was found guilty, Dr. Pritchard confessed to his killings under the supervision of reverence. The admission wasn't needed. His fate had already been sealed. But it's likely Pritchard was motivated by greed once again. This time, for any chance of salvation in the afterlife. In those final days, Pritchard became obsessed with godliness, reading and reciting the Bible, and including references to it in letters to his family members. But nothing would stop the inevitable. On July 28, 39-year-old Dr. Edward William Pritchard was brought to the Glasgow Green. A reported 100,000 onlookers stood by, it was a notable occasion. In fact, it's now known as Glasgow's last public execution. For that, Pritchard would always be remembered. Though he'd sought notoriety his whole life for a false identity, it was only when the sinister nature of his true character was revealed that Pritchard won the audience he dreamed of. Perhaps he even grinned to himself as he stepped toward the noose. After all, desperate times call for desperate measures. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much. For more information on Edward William Pritchard, among the many sources we used, we found The Trial of Dr. Pritchard by William Roughhead extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. 
Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.